Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. You know, purgatory is all about prayer because everybody's praying to get into heaven. In heaven, though, once you're on the other side, you start praying for those in purgatory and still on earth. And the church um, militant, the church um, has already uh, come into being. Anybody want to pray? I'll pray. Okay. Thank you, Lucas. Sure. Father, Son, (laughs) Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, and enlighten our intellects and strengthen our wills to enter more deeply into the mystery of our faith. Bless us for trying to do your will, though it's hard to know always what that is. Especially bless Dr. Mafu for for his gifts and his his willingness to share it with us. We ask all of this through our mom's um, intercession. Mary, as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lucas. All right. So um, with that excellent introduction, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about... um, uh, spiritual growth, actually spiritual growth is the uh, entirety of the um, talk, but a little bit about it in purgatory and a lot about it in paradise. And this is week five of our six-week um, adventure, uh, meaning that uh, next week uh, we get to see the beatific vision. And uh, you get the final um, demonstration of the ultimate growth of humanity, which is our own divinization into the mind of God. So the idea is uh, simply that God created us in his image and likeness uh, in order to uh, be his friend. That friendship, if we accept it, comes with great benefits. That is, we get to share as uh, sub-creators in the great uh, uh, cosmic creation uh, that God has provided. Now, we already share as sub-creators. The idea of sub-creation is that uh, God works through secondary causes. He works through us in um, channeling grace uh, throughout uh, creation, create great works of art that glorify God. We engage in uh, corporal uh, corporal and spiritual acts of mercy uh, that uh, do glory uh, to God. So we're constantly... uh, taking creation uh, and engaging creation in a way that uh, supports, advances uh, the design that God intended. Uh, But we're also doing the opposite. Uh, Filled as we are with our various vices, tearing down creation and tearing down both God and man. Uh, So uh, the goal is growth, Uh, not... uh, 
uh, its opposite, which is a spiritual kind of malnourishment or diminishing. As we move through the uh, worlds that Dante has created for us in this apocalypse, we've seen uh, what hell is, and we've seen what purgatory is, and we've had a glimpse into what paradise is. Hell, to start there, is a demonstration of spiritual stagnation. God created us for eternal and joyful communion with him. That was his plan. And he's told us this in the scriptures. And if we didn't get it from the Old Testament, uh, Christ uh, was very um, emphatic about it in the New Testament. He said, um, you are no longer my servants. You're not my servants. I call you my friends. And this is evidenced by the fact that I'm telling you my plans. A master doesn't tell his servants his plans, but he does tell his friends his plans. And that is that he has created for us a mansion out of many mansions in heaven, in that our role in life, our purpose in life, is eternal and joyful communion with him. We are the only creature that God created for its own sake, so that we would be free to choose uh, that eternal uh, friendship with God. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we uh, miss the mark. And we've seen in the Inferno uh, what the consequences of missing that mark are. God so loves us that he gives us the freedom to choose not to live in eternal and joyful communion with us. And he uh, has created a place. And if you read uh, St. John Paul II on this point in his uh, Hell, Purgatory, and Heaven, He's created a place which is, uh, which is more than a place, it's a state of being, where we can live for all eternity, wrapped up in our own vices, never growing beyond them. And the fact that God loves us even through that is evidenced by the fact that he sustains us in being. We are sustained in being for all eternity in a state of spiritual stagnation. Not because God is mean, but because that's what we chose. You can see in the Inferno, at the very beginning, and I'll just walk through the three worlds, and then as you have questions, please uh, put them in the chat room. You can see at the big, uh, in the Inferno at the very beginning, Dante wakes up in a dark wood, which he calls a dark wood of error. We don't know what that dark wood means for another 64 cantos when Beatrice explains it to him that he had chosen uh, the path of human reason over that of divine revelation, thinking that he could pursue his own salvation through his own merits, through his own uh, natural abilities. He did not understand, at least when he's in the dark wood and when he meets Virgil, because he calls Virgil the master, you know, even up in the top of Mount Purgatory, he says, this is the guy I gave my soul to for its salvation. He uh, does not realize when he's in the dark wood uh, why he's there. It's um, explained by St. Augustine in his response to Pelagius when St. Augustine says, one needs supernatural grace to perfect our nature. And so that's a, a very uh, simple formula that grace perfects nature. There are those, uh, perhaps um, Pelagius and others, who might not want grace because they say it'll get away, get in the way of their nature. 
they're afraid it will diminish their nature. They're afraid it will overpower or overshadow their nature. And it'll suffocate them. But to be the fullness of a human person, you want to be fully alive. And as St. Um, Irenaeus wrote, uh, the glory of God is living man. And living man is man when he sees God. To be living rather than to be dead means that you're growing. So in the Inferno, we've met lots of people who um, explain a particular concept that we came to know as contrapasso. They explain it in their words, like Capanius, when he says, what I was living, I am now dead, which is the most succinct explanation of contrapasso in the entire comedy. And they explain it in their actions. So for instance, there are souls trapped in ice in the ninth circle of hell that cannot move. I mean, they're completely trapped in the ice. Dante can see them as like little um, twigs underneath the uh, ice, uh, the top layer of the ice, but they can't move. They're completely inert. From the first circle of hell, actually from the uh, vestibule, we meet souls who are stuck in a state of arrested development. Uh, Paolo and Francesca are star-crossed lovers. They're whipped by the passions of a tornado. I mean, that's they're explaining the state of their souls. Though together for all eternity, they can find no joy in one another's company. Their um, interaction with one another lacked uh, what will later become apparent when we get to the desert scenery in the seventh circle, lacked fecundity. They had made, or at least Francesca had made a covenant with God that uh, her husband would be the person uh, with, through whom and with whom she sought the kingdom of heaven. But she had an affair with her husband's brother, Paolo. And for whatever reason, uh, she blames it on a book, on the story of uh, Guinevere and Lancelot, where she and uh, Paolo were reading that story and they uh, came upon the uh, adulterous affair and their passions were inflamed and they looked up from the book and they never looked back down. Her husband caught him in the act and killed them both. And she says, oh, he's going to a much worse place. But they haven't taken responsibility for themselves. They haven't taken responsibility for their own actions. They're constantly shifting the blame to something else. Oh, it's the book. Oh, my husband's at fault for killing us before we could repent, any of those things. They'll never get out of that state of denial and of uh, an insistence that they don't need grace. And it's for this reason that St. Augustine is right, that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Even if those gates were wide open, and they are, because Christ came down and knocked them open, the upper gates, even if those gates were wide open, nobody would want to leave. Because like Graham Greene, about whom we spoke last week, uh, who was traveling through Europe with his mistress and had the chance to meet Padre Pio and decided not to, uh, Graham Greene said, the reason I did not want to meet him is because I believe that man could change me and I like myself just the way I am. In the Inferno, we have a demonstration of spiritual stagnation. Nobody's going to get any better than where they are. And not only do you see it in each of the cantos, there's demonstrations of contrapasso, uh, which is uh, usually defined to mean the punishment fits the crime, but really means 
the state in which you uh, were when you died is the state in which you will persist for all eternity. We see um, demonstrations of degradation in human community. Now, Christ gave us two commandments, and they were, they're summarized very succinctly in Luke 10, 27. He asked somebody else, what are the two greatest commandments? And the uh, lawyer says, oh, well, it's these things. And Christ says, you are right. So that all the other commandments are just a footnote to these two. Love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if these people are in a state of arrested development in which they've consciously chosen the created good over the creator, they don't love themselves. They can't commit an act of injustice against themselves because we all pursue the good. Even the suicide pursues the good that he perceives. Uh, but they do commit an act of injustice against man and against God. They don't know how to love themselves to their fullest because they're tied up in their sins, uh, because they're tied up in um, activity that is both spiritual, because uh, if you recall, Christ interiorized our external acts. He says, uh, it's not just the man who looks at a woman with lust, who commits adultery with her. I mean, who commits an act of lust, uh, an act of adultery that commits adultery. If he looks at a woman with lust, he's committing adultery. And of course, the same is vice versa, a woman looking at a man um, in that way, with the intention of using that person entirely as an object, which is why John Paul II extends that idea to say that um, uh, even if a man were to do look at his own wife in lust, he's committing adultery with her, with his own wife, because he's uh, turned her person into property and turned her uh, from being a subject for whom he should will her good greater than his own and take joy in that good that she receives. Turns her into an object, uh, which is uh, property to manipulate. So we uh, are used to manipulating objects, but in order to manipulate a human person, we have to first objectify them. And so in hell, everybody's an object of everybody else. In hell, Paolo and Francesca objectified each other. They didn't care about the other person's good, what would be good for the other. They cared only about satisfying their own appetites. And in this case, in the second circle, it was the concupiscible appetite, uh, the passionate appetite, the uh, physical uh, yearning and response uh, for the other person's body, which they were going to use in order to satisfy their own uh, desires. The third circle, not, uh, you don't, don't just have um, uh, two people using one another as objects. You've got a person filling himself with food. As he's a glutton, he's become a belly god. And he doesn't need any other people. So there's a, a major step away from community. When one feels that he's completely fulfilled, simply with bringing in external objects into his body. And uh, his, as his body grows, he becomes hungrier. So uh, that the, the larger he is, the fatter he is, more he or she needs in order to sustain that girth. And uh, overeating can lead to uh, overweight. So uh, my own father uh, died at age 56 from problems related to his own obesity. 
and uh, he was 450 pounds when he realized he was in trouble and managed to lose a bit of weight, but couldn't get the weight off quickly enough to save his life. Uh, but he lived uh, for at least uh, 40 years of his life uh, pursuing um, his appetites. That became, for him, uh, the thing that he wanted. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that he's going to the inferno. Uh, we, as a church, and the magisterium, as the pope and the bishops, have never declared any person by name to be in hell. But we have declared lots of saints. And that's what enables us to pray for everyone, that God's mercy be great and infinite. Your success spiritually comes in your wanting to be with and wanting to um, the good of the other, of even those people that you now consider enemies, of even those people that irk you to no end. So uh, whether the person who irks you is Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump, you want to spend your eternity with that person's constant presence in your life. And that is uh, the kind of thing that makes you ready for heaven. So uh, we wouldn't say, well, Attila the Hun is in hell or Adolf Hitler's in hell, because we don't know. It's not our call. All we can say is, we know these people did a lot of bad things. We pray for them, and uh, we hope uh, in God's infinite mercy that at some point in their career, they accepted the truth of the gospel message. And even if they didn't live their life in faith, like a Manfred in the Purgatorio, even if they didn't live their life in faith, that perhaps there would be some way to redeem them after they die. Now, if you recall, Manfred was uh, excommunicated, and we find him on the ledge of the excommunicate. Did not die uh, in a state where the church recognized that he was in a state of grace. He died uh, excommunicated. But at the last minute, he called out, to God, to Christ, to Mary, and said, look, I know I've done some bad things. I want to come home. And like the father who's looking out for the prodigal son, uh, God reaches out for him and brings him into his glory. Now, we only see him in the, the purgatorio down in, among the uh, excommunicants. Anybody who makes it to purgatory is uh, heaven-bound. Because there's only two states. And if we were to separate this map of three different worlds, we would put a huge divider line between the Inferno and the Purgatorio. Because the states are these, the state of sin and the state of grace. And if you die in a state of grace, you go to heaven. Because that's what we need. Supernatural grace is what uh, perfects our natural dispositions. And it's supernatural grace that flows from Christ as capital grace that sanctifies us as sanctifying grace that brings us home. And if we reject grace, which is nothing else than the activity of God working within man, uh, and we say, we don't want to go where you are, God. We do not want eternal and joyful communion with you. We do not want to grow spiritually for all eternity. We want this thing that's in front of me. That's what I want to map my eternal soul onto, is the created thing. 
or my own uh, fraudulent uh, proclivities. You know, I want to I want to get mine. If we do that, then uh, we end up uh, experiencing all the effects of eternal damnation. And uh, if you look at the effects of eternal damnation, the community disintegrates rapidly as Dante moves through the inferno. We move from uh, people knocking boulders against one another uh, to people fighting each other in a swamp of sullenness and wrath to um, uh, people uh, running around various rounds of the seventh circle in the desert uh, who can't be seen with other groups. If you recall um, Dante's old teacher, Brunetto Latini, stops long enough to talk to him and then takes off running again because he said, there's some guys coming I can't be a part of. To the big melee and the den of thieves, where they're not only attacking each other, but they're stealing each other's bodies, where a snake will shoot into a, a soul that's um, expressing himself or manifesting himself poorly, steal his body and transform himself back into a human only to have another snake uh, you know, rip uh, him apart and then transform um, where he gets transformed into a snake and the other guy gets transformed into a human, into a human form. Now we talked already about Statius in Canto 25 of the Purgatorio, where Dante, after, uh, what is that, 34 plus 25 is 59 cantos, finally thinks to ask the question that first popped into his mind in uh, Canto 6, uh, Among the Gluttons. He's asking it again among a different set of gluttons. He says, well, wait a second. Why do these guys look so wasted if they're spirits? And Statius explains, well, what you're seeing is the state of their soul. So it's what uh, Pope uh, uh, St. John Paul II said. More than a place, it's a state of being. And so uh, if you have a twisted, gnarly soul, then that's going to manifest itself. It's going to represent itself in uh, the way in which you manifest your body in the afterlife, because the soul is the form of the body. And uh, the soul will form the body from any matter. It happens that when God creates the soul inside of a, a mother's womb at the moment of conception, that soul forms its body from that matter. And at first, it's just a speck, and then it grows into the size of a raisin, and then into the size of a bowling ball. A woman gives birth, and uh, the child continues to grow until it resembles you and me, and then continues to grow older, uh, and then uh, eventually the body dies. But the soul that's animating that body lives forever. We know this from, um, from our pagan philosophy uh, simply by looking at the immateriality of the intellect. That which is immaterial does not die. And we know it from our theology. So we have philosophical anthropology at play on one hand, things that we can figure out on our own. And then we have theological anthropology on the other hand, which are things that are revealed to us where God, through uh, providing his grace, uh, which we receive um, at baptism uh, with the theological virtues of uh, faith, hope, and charity, this grace brings us home. So the people who are in heaven are in the fullness of uh, who they are as human persons, whereas the people who are in hell are the most shriveled, the least full, I might say. But God loves them still, as evidenced by the fact that he keeps them in being. If you hold anything in your hand, 
and you pull away your hand, that thing falls to the floor. Uh, but if you want to keep it in being, you keep it held in your hand. And it may fight, it may bite, it may do whatever, uh, but uh, you're sustaining it in that place regardless. And that's what God does with all of us, um, with all of our souls. In hell, they're not only spiritually stagnated, uh, but they are um, living, uh, persisting forever in that state of spiritual stagnation, and they are decreasingly engaged in human community. The greatest evidence of human community in all the inferno is what you see in the first circle in limbo, where everybody's hanging out, talking with one another, just like Socrates uh, uh, said that it would be like uh, in the Phaedo, where he says, you know what, I'm going to be able to talk to all the philosophers who died before, and I'm going to be able to like really engage them in conversation. I'll get to do that forever. Socrates knew about the immortality of the soul, and he knew a soul existed. And Plato knew it because uh, he represents Socrates as having said it and uh, organized the thought. Uh, and we've, we, uh, we have access to that because of Plato. And Aristotle knew it because even Aristotle went further and said, well, wait a second. It's possible that, uh, that since you can't have an infinite regress and since you uh, can't, uh, whenever you've got a cause, something had to create that cause. And um, so you've got to have like uh, one unmoved mover, one uncaused cause. And uh, St. Thomas picks up on that in the second um, question in the Summa, part one, and lays out five ways that we know God as the unmoved mover, as the uncaused cause from uh, the argument from design and so on. So by the time you get to the bottom of the inferno, not only are these souls ripping each other apart, and uh, there's this great scene with Master Adam and Sinon the Greek where they're just... They, uh, ripping each other verbally. And Dante's fascinated. He's staring at that like, whoa. It's like watching uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians or any of the reality shows where you're just so transfixed by the, uh, the way uh, these people are spiteful to one another. The Vanderpump rules, for instance, and so on. Actually, you see it a lot in, the, in the reality shows like that, that uh, you can't look away. It's like looking at a train wreck. So Virgil says, look, to the wish to hear such baseness is itself degrading because uh, eventually you'll fall into it. And then you get down to the ninth circle and you've got one guy uh, who was double crossed by another guy. They were dirty double crossers. Uh, one guy, a Count um, Ugolino, is eating the head of Bishop Ruggieri because uh, the bishop left uh, him and uh, the archbishop left him and his children in a tower and locked the doors and uh, walked away. And so they starved to death. And uh, the uh, thought is that the father, uh, Count Ugolino, uh, ended up cannibalizing himself uh, on the dead bodies of his children. So uh, for in hell, the person who put him in that position is forever his food. And not only uh, are they not nice to each other, uh, but you get the disintegration in community. Now jump into the Purgatorio and you see something um, you see something uh, interesting start to happen. You see people leaning against one another. You start to see this in the boat where everybody jumps off the angel boatman and uh, Dante talks to Casella and everybody's mingling and, and hanging out and uh, being a part of community until they're chased off by Cato who uh, says, hey, you guys, you need to get up the mountain. Your goal isn't to hang out here jibber jabbering on the, on the shore. And they all fly up the mountain as fast as uh, they're uh, time on, in life allows them. 
in antipurgatory, they have to wait a certain amount of time based on how much time they made God wait until they can actually hit the mountain, uh, pass through Peter's gate and begin their penance proper uh, or begin to fill themselves with the virtues that correspond to the vices uh, for which they're culpable. So in the first ledge of the uh, Purgatorio, you've got souls moving around with boulders stuck on their backs. They can't really see the other souls. They can probably hear one another, but they can't engage in community because they've got boulders on their backs. And so they just move around like turtles. And uh, Dante, uh, in order to talk with one of them, has to lower himself down in order to better understand his state. Well, that is, he's humbling himself. So uh, by the time they get to the second ledge, though, you've got um, souls who are sitting with one another in groups. They can't see uh, one another because their eyes are sewn shut with metal wires. But they can hear one another, and they can lean against one another, and they can uh, give comfort to one another. So that's um, as big a step toward community, the ledge of pride to the ledge of envy, as we went down a step away from human community, from the circle of lust to the circle of gluttony. And so you start to see community in, pur in the Purgatorio rebuild itself as uh, they climb the mountain in an in inverse proportion to the way that it disintegrated as they were descending into uh, hell uh, through the inferno. So you can even see the parallels. The least of all the sins is lust because it's the most natural thing that comes to us. We look at something and it pleases our eye. The problem is, is that we then focus so intently on that 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 becomes our God and we fall into idolatry. So lust is the least of the, uh, of the vices, it's the least of the sins. So that's why you see lust in circle two in the uh, inferno and all the way up on the top of Mount Purgatory on the uh, ledge, on the seventh ledge. The second vice uh, that is the, uh, comes most naturally to us is gluttony. And the third is avarice. And so in hell, you move from lust to gluttony to avarice. In heaven, you move when you're at the upper half of Mount Purgatory from avarice to gluttony to lust. So in inverse uh, mapping, pulling yourself away from these vices, and in the case of the um, Purgatorio, you're filling yourself up with the corresponding virtues of liberality, which is giving the right amounts to the right people at the right times and for the right reasons, and uh, abstinence, uh, which is not, uh, it's not not overeating, more of a... Um, a proper adjustment, eating the right amounts for the right reasons at the right times, perhaps with the right people, uh, though that's not necessarily a uh, prerequisite for eating. But to uh, gorge yourself alone is definitely not a prerequisite for eating. Lust, uh, or the corresponding virtue of chastity, and that is uh, understanding your proper relationship to other human persons and engaging them in the right way and uh, for the right amount of time and for the right reasons, etc. So in the virtues, what you're doing is you're um, pursuing the right path or the right road or the right way to live, as opposed to the, um, to the vices where you are pursuing an excess of love for the created thing. Uh, Mount Purgatory have an excess of love for the created thing, and that's what they are... Uh, 
well, that's what the virtues are, are addressing. Uh, but you, um, it has not prevented you from dying in a state of grace. Uh, in hell, it did, because uh, you shut the door to God if you ended up in hell, and you left that door open. And eventually, like Kanitsa up in the uh, third uh, sphere of heaven, the third sphere of paradise, you see through the created thing to the creator. Suddenly, if you can see the creator, you've got your mind oriented on the right thing. So uh, we as a human species are very docile. That is, we allow ourselves to be mapped onto any given paradigm and allow that paradigm to uh, teach us what we perceive to be the right way to live because we're always pursuing the good uh, not necessarily the true good, who is God, who is a person, uh, but the good for me now, or the good for me, or the good for my family, or the good for my community, without regard for the good of all of humanity, or of the good of the relationship with God. So if we see a disintegration of community and a stagnation of growth in hell, we see a reintegration of community and spiritual growth as evidenced by the compounding virtues in purgatory. So that's the nature of spiritual growth as expressed across at least those first two spheres, uh, those first two worlds of the Inferno and the Purgatorio, and into the third world of the Paradiso. And in the Paradiso, uh, we go through the first three uh, spheres of paradise. Uh, we go through the moon, we go through um, Mercury, and we go through Venus. And these represent, because Dante is all about allegory and metaphor, these represent a, a lack of faith, you know, some uh, degree of a lack of faith, some degree of a lack of hope, and some degree of a lack of love. Uh, and that's why the first three spheres of paradise are called the anthropomorphic or anthropocentric spheres because Dante can still see the souls in human lineaments, in their bodies. They're manifesting themselves to Dante in a way that would be familiar to Dante. Once we get past the third sphere of paradise and into the fourth sphere, which is the sun, and we meet the uh, theologians uh, and the philosophers who um, were scholastics, that is, they pursued faith uh, they pursued reason, but they also pursued faith. So they're a different kind of clustering than the ones we found in limbo. Uh, though um, they're the same kind of thinker in the sense that they wanted to know how things work. They wanted to know who they were, uh, but they also wanted to know who they were in relation to not only man, but also to God. And so you can see the, uh, the uh, commandments of Christ being fulfilled in the Paradiso to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to know yourself. So that's where the philosophical anthropology comes in. And that's um, uh, where uh, natural law also comes in, because we can understand who we are in relation to others uh, purely through um, uh, natural law, which is uh, a participation of the rational creature in the eternal law. We can't understand the mysteries, even uh, if we have sacred scripture sometimes, um, but we can't understand um, the fullness of 
what it is that we're being told to do, and that is uh, uh, theology, which is faith-seeking understanding, uh, without understanding, uh, without uh, being exposed to divine revelation. Because it's divine revelation that reveals to us God's divine love. And that's what Beatrice represents. And so by the time Dante passes, uh, Virgil passes Dante to Beatrice at the top of Mount Purgatory, Dante uh, has already reached the fullness of what human reason can teach him. If you recall, Virgil uh, crowns and miters him. He makes him king and bishop of his own soul. Uh, and Dante's ready for the next step. And the next step means that he's got to understand the nature of God's love metaphysically. And that's what the entire Paradiso is about. It's the metaphysics of love. As Dante moves through paradise, he's actually not moving to an end point necessarily, which is uh, where God would be in relation to where he starts. He's moving to a center point. And that is God is the center of everything. And as Dante moves away from what had been the center point of the earth, which is the inferno, to the center point of God, he is growing through that entire experience. And you first get the sense that he's growing in the fourth sphere of heaven. And you really get it when you get up to the Empyrean. But in the fourth sphere of heaven, Dante starts to see another garland come into view. And this is the garland with all the Franciscans in it. And then he realizes he was only so big to be able to see the, um, the garland with the Dominicans as he continues to expand, he's able to see, at least his mind is able to see, uh, another garland. Um, and then he's able to understand the conversation. And then he expands more, and he sees what he thinks is a third garland coming into view. And it turns out that's the fifth sphere of heaven. And he meets Cachaguida, who's his great-great-grandfather. And Cachaguida um, starts to speak to him in terms that he can't understand. And Cachaguida has to bring his language down, just like Beatrice was talking to him um, in the sphere of the moon in terms he could not understand. She had to bring her language down to, uh, in order to accommodate his dull intellect. So Cachaguida says, you know, I'm just not used to, uh, to, to speaking um, on a human level anymore because I've grown this much. And so Dante, in order to continue growing, has to be to continue receiving certain benefits, certain um, ministrations. And at one point, he can't hear anything. And he realizes that if he hears anything, or that if, you know, at some other point, he sees Beatrice's smile, and he's not ready for it, it could overwhelm him and destroy him. Like Simile being uh, destroyed um, uh, by seeing the fullness of, uh, of uh, Apollo or how Moses might have been destroyed had he seen the fullness of God rather than just God's back. As Dante's capacity to engage increases, he's able to see uh, and have his mind expanded to see uh, more and more deeply in the mind of God. But even then, he still has trouble. He still has human things getting in the way. And so at one point, he sees two pagans in heaven, and he's convinced these guys shouldn't be there. Now, he's already been told by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas not to jump to conclusions. 
because um, he thought that St. Thomas had misspoken when he said that Solomon was the greatest or the wisest man uh, to have lived. St. Thomas says, well, you just didn't pick up on the, uh, on the news item in, that, uh, in what I said. And uh, the point is don't jump to conclusions. Well, when he meets um, St. Peter Damien in the seventh sphere and sees the two uh, pagans, it's explained to him, Damien explains to him that uh, both have their own stories. In Raphaeus's case, who's a pagan who lived a thousand years before Christ, he was a Trojan. God showed him a vision of Christ to come. And Raphaeus accepted that vision and then was thereby able to be saved. Uh, likewise, Trajan, who's the other pagan. In Trajan, if you recall, is the same guy who uh, Saint, uh, sent uh, Saint Ignatius to be eaten by lions. So he was a real uh, treasure. Uh, but he's also the guy whom, uh, who is immortalized in the Purgatorio as the one who stopped an entire army to bring justice to an old widow. We're already prepared for his good qualities. St. Ignatius, who ended up being sent off to the lions, you know, would be in heaven with him and would be a, uh, find great joy in Trajan's having been saved because that's what the people in heaven do. They find great joy in the salvation of others. Uh, so much so that when uh, Dante meets Justinian, uh, this group of souls come up to him, and the first thing they say is, here is somebody who will bring even greater joy and love to us, who will be an increase to our love, uh, because every person who's saved, what we want is we want uh, their good. And then we suddenly realize that in our wanting the greater good for them, we bring on to ourselves a greater good for us because we get it at that point. We're at a point where we see the other as ourself and we love the other and we celebrate the successes and the joys and the love of the other. And we don't even think that uh, their good uh, could bring uh, some kind of diminishment to our own. Now we went through hell and we saw that all over hell somebody had something good, other people were envious. They actually had sorrow for another person's good. But in heaven, all we see is joy over another person's good. So when Dante enters the Empyrean and then is brought there for the purpose of seeing uh, entering into the mind of God, there's no jealousy, there's no envy in the whole place. Because everybody recognizes uh, the way that providence works, like St. Damien points out, is uh, while it may not be the way they work, it's the right way to work. And everybody is in a state of ongoing spiritual growth forever. So that's the nature of spiritual growth as it's expressed in the expanse of the comedy. In hell, it's stagnation. But from the point of the shore in purgatory, People are growing, and they're growing for all eternity, spiritually, in eternal and joyful communion with their creator. So there you have it. Uh, feel free to unmute your mics as well and just speak. But let me open the chat room real quick. Okay, so uh, from uh, Lucas Prize, uh, Dr. Mafu talking about how God's grace constantly being poured on us, uh, though we walk around with umbrellas remember the talk from the virtual theology of the body conference that just took place last weekend did anyone else partake really great stuff 
the talk that I was reminded of was called The Nuptial Spirituality of the Present Moment. And it was about how the Father is trying to love us every second in each present moment, though we often busy ourselves too much to receive it. Um, Lucas, do you want to say anything more about that? And I think as much as someone like you knows about Dante and, uh, I mean, the, you know, the Divine Comedy, how you are still interested in, in, you know, reading it again and again and again and keeping the dialogue going, just made me think about the, how, how much there is to constantly unpack and how much there constantly is to be reminded of, of all these, all these deep spiritual truths. Yeah, because hearing you give this lecture, give this um, course, it's like a like a really good catechesis. You know, it's a really good uh, lesson in just theology. Uh, it's a, it doesn't sound like we're talking about a poem anymore. It just sounds like we're talking about our Catholic faith. And so I could see why it would be something you'd want to keep re revisiting and and keep the conversation going and the dialogue going in that way. Does anybody else have any thoughts on that, Amanda? Amanda, that's a good question that you've asked there. Um, how, would you, how would you answer it? Well, it's funny that um, Lucas would bring that talk up because I feel like it actually kind of really gets into my question that, you know, God loves us the way we are, but, like, with that, with that love almost comes that, like, potential for growth. So maybe, like, the, I'm thinking, like, the first step that maybe Dante is, like, trying to get us to think about, too, is, like, sort of like that examine examination of conscience and like whether or not we've accepted you know god's love for us sort of like what you were using lucas with the the image of the umbrella how we like put that umbrella down to receive i don't know the reign of god's grace to use the metaphor a little further so i think like that's kind of what separates as we've talked about in class like the people in hell from the people in purgatory is the people in purgatory they're open to god's love they're really they want to be with God. So uh, spiritual growth in purgatory in heaven, uh, what should we do to prepare ourselves to the growth on earth? The, the wonderful thing about um, the Paradiso is that it demonstrates to us that uh, we as finite persons get to grow infinitely within an infinite being. That's the sum of, um, of Peter Damien's point. There's absolutely no end to the amount of growth that we'll be doing or that we'll be able to experience and the amount of warmth and light uh, from God that we'll be able to receive. And it's not just a gradual thing. It's a uh, constant so that uh, in any given instant, you are more perfect than you were in the previous instant by an ocean of, of grace, because you're able to fully absorb and fully accept everything that God's giving you. And in that image of the mystical rose, which we'll talk about next week, you've got angels moving from uh, God to the soul, back to God, back to the soul, back to God, back to the soul, constantly ministering to the human soul. So uh, what can we do to prepare ourselves for this growth on earth? Well, we can grow in the virtues. Uh, we can practice the virtues uh, that Dante lays out for us in the, um, in the Purgatorio. We can practice humility. And we can find that if we practice humility and charity and meekness, how much stronger we're going to be when those three virtues start working together with one another. It's so much better than cultivating the corresponding bias, vices. Uh, to be proud and to be envious and to be um, wrathful, those 
vices will fight against one another and corrode and eat your soul. But to have the corresponding virtues all at once uh, builds you up and gives you a bedrock for anything that life is going to throw at you. So uh, I would say uh, cultivate the virtues, natural virtues, uh, and the supernatural ones. The only two spiritual vices are, are uh, pride and envy. Those were the vices that caused the uh, immaterial, incorporeal angels to fall from heaven. Then the two uh, spiritual virtues would be humility and charity. Those can be assisted, or our cultivation of those can be assisted, by our practicing uh, the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And you can see how one of them is the same, charity, charity. Faith is uh, succinctly defined by Mary in John 2, 5, when she tells the servants of Cana, do whatever he tells you. Do the Father's will. Faith is, um, is Christ doing everything that his Father told him, and us doing everything that Christ tells us to do. Hope is uh, an understanding that uh, you're heaven-bound. Peter, in 1 Peter 3.15, points out, he says, always give, be prepared to give a reason for your hope. Somebody's going to say, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I hope. Well, how do you hope you're going to heaven? Well, I'm doing everything he tells me. And uh, if you just do those things, uh, you're going to um, have a soul that's rested and at peace, not only with God, with whom you uh, will regularly reconcile, but with your fellow man and, importantly, with yourself. Because you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love yourself. So those are some things you can do. So can you elaborate on meekness and how it is practiced? Dante is obviously very proud of his self-proclaimed genius as a poet, so he might not be a great example. Um, That's funny. Uh, Dante is, um, his big problem is pride. And he even points out to Sapia on the second ledge of hell, I mean of purgatory, He's sitting there and he's, he's lost a little bit in thought and Sapia realizes he's distracted and he says, you know, I'm just, I'm just a little bit worried that I'm going to spend a lot of time on that ledge below. Because the guy is, uh, demonstrates his pride of self uh, every time he talks. In Limbo, he puts himself in with the five greatest poets of all uh, time. And he says, and they counted me a sixth in their number. Uh, the eighth circle of hell, he says, okay, I'm about to out Ovid Ovid. Ovid wrote about these metamorphoses, but he's never written about what I'm about to write about. And then he goes into that description of the snakes uh, 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 transforming one another uh, into snakes and stealing bodies and things like that. So he's, uh, he knows his talent and he knows his worth. He's got great pride of talent and uh, he knows he's going to be spending a lot of time. Now, meekness is um, having the right amount of anger for the right reasons and at the right times and with the right uh, situations, or in the right situations. So if you recall, the greatest example in Scripture we have of meekness is Christ overturning the moneylenders' tables. Wrath, which is the corresponding vice, lashes out at the wrong people for the wrong reasons at the wrong times, and so on. So, um, or it holds it all inside, as we saw in the Sullens down in the uh, uh, Marsh of Styx and allows it to corrode the inside, so on the outside you appear calm, but the inside you're a boiling ocean. You're a boiling pit of uh, pitch. Um, 
so meekness is practiced by um, what my friend Rhonda Chervin calls taming the lion within. It's practiced by uh, accepting uh, that your strengths may not be strong enough uh, and that your weaknesses are not so weak that you're unable to act. It's accepting that other people have weaknesses and that other people have strengths. When you are angry at somebody else, think, am I angry at the person? Because remember 1 John 4.20, he who um, says he loves God but hates his neighbor is a liar. If you're angry at the person, think, okay, this person has really upset me because of the particular activity this person has done or because of the particular things this person has said or the things that this person has not done or has not said. Like, you didn't come to my defense when I was being attacked by somebody else. And put it in perspective. When Christ meets Peter after the resurrection, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. He says, do you love me? He said, he's my sheep. He doesn't blame Peter for Peter's weakness in denying him three times. He gives Peter the opportunity to proclaim him three times. That's meekness. It's uh, not only uh, seeing the good in another, in uh, seeking to bring that good out rather than tear it further apart. And so instead of uh, being wrathful or angry in your responses to others, try to put in the put uh, those situations in the right perspective and uh, respond in love. So that's how I would say um, how to deal with meekness. What else are your thoughts in terms of spiritual growth? Uh, in what ways, um, if we can grow like that in meekness, uh, what if what if we brought two virtues together? I mean, if if uh, if you can think of two of your vices, uh, minor. Uh, I've got a spiritual vice of pride uh, in a big way, and then uh, I would say that I'm a bit avaricious. You know, I like to spend. So pride and avarice. If I were to cultivate humility and uh, liberality more intentionally, I could combat those vices pretty well. But because those are my vices, I may not be able to cultivate humility and liberality very well. And uh, I know that if I do cultivate them, the liberality and uh, humility will work together. And I'll be miles better than I am now. But maybe what I can do is try to cultivate charity a little more, uh, which is another spiritual um, uh, virtue, and then cultivate either meekness or uh, abstinence more. Because I know that if I cultivate other virtues, ultimately, because all virtues work together, uh, then I'll be better able to cultivate the real virtues I'm trying to cultivate that correspond to the real vices that I'm struggling with. So uh, it doesn't do you any good if you have one vice to trade it for another vice. Like, okay, so I'm gonna give up lust for Lent uh, and I'll just substitute for gluttony because that's worse. Uh, and it's not like the gluttony is gonna help you uh, with the lust or, you know, the um, wrath. You know, I'm, I'm just gonna learn to be more judgmental and, and hate Protestants more. It's going to help you at all with, uh, with whatever. But if you cultivate the virtues, every virtue you cultivate helps you with another virtue. And uh, that's a way to continue growing. Maybe do a survey, an analysis. So when I teach this class, I usually teach it in the spring term. 
and we get through hell right about Ash Wednesday, and we enter purgatory on Ash Wednesday. And we go through all of Lent in the purgatorio because we're doing one canto a day. And then we enter paradise on Easter Sunday. Now, sometimes liturgical calendar works out like that, and other times it doesn't. Like if Easter's really late, there's no way we can do all the cantos before the end of the school year. But I recommend to the students that they go to confession at least seven times over the course of Lent and confess at each of those um, opportunities for confession an instance of a particular vice, of pride, of envy, of wrath, of sloth, of avarice, of gluttony, and of lust. And see whether or not they grow spiritually over the course of that experience. And uh, it, it's, it's never uh, an experiment that fails because if you commit yourself to it, um, at the end of the Lenten season, uh, you're all wrapped up in virtue. Um, now, if you recall, if you, um, when you get to the eighth sphere of heaven, Dante will meet Adam. And he'll ask Adam, he'll say, um, so how long was it from the time you were created to the time you fell? And Adam says, oh, it was about six hours. And Dante's like, um, at least Charity writes this in his notes. He says, Dante seems to be making a commentary on about how long we can go from the from one rec uh, moment of reconciliation uh, to the time we sin again. I mean, and, and if you can go a whole six hours without sinning, you're doing great. But uh, not to be um, scrupulous about it. So um, why does Dante choose to write about hell, purgatory, and heaven? Why not just hell, for example? A, a friend of mine uh, gave me a good insight into this question. Um, his name was Andrew Sopko. He was our librarian at Kendrick Lennon Seminary back when I first offered this course in uh, the spring of 05 uh, to the students at Kendrick. I said, well, I'll, I'll probably, it's only 15 weeks. Uh, we can probably get through the Inferno in about that time. Because the Inferno's got a lot in it. And if I tried to do... Um, of three, I don't know if I can make it through. And he said, I understand what you're saying, but why introduce them to hell only to just not bring them to the beatific vision? Everybody should see the beatific vision. Now, I thought that um, he was being um, uh, rather magnanimous in his approach that, you know, if I am going to show them a vision of hell, uh, like uh, St. Paul's Apocalypse, I should show them a vision of heaven as well. It turned out later when I interviewed him uh, for the uh, videos I was creating for the Dante course, um, he pointed out that the Greek Orthodox don't really believe in hell. And if there is a hell, he says, there's no one in it because the second judgment hasn't occurred. He said, what we Orthodox believe is that everybody goes to the, uh, receives the beatific vision when they die because God created us, um, our souls, directly. He said, but the thing is, is those of us who are not oriented toward that vision experience it as a burning, singeing, painful experience. And for us, standing in the full presence of God is hell. For those of us who are oriented, he said, they experience it as sweetness and light. And for them, it's heaven. But everybody's there, he argued. So if I were to um, talk about hell, I should also talk about heaven, was his point. In Dante's case, uh, he set out to write of Beatrice what nobody had written of any other woman. And to understand Dante's motivation, uh, you want to read La Vita Nuova. Because he ends it by saying, I'm not going to write any more about this woman until I can write of her what nobody has written of any other woman. 
what no man has ever um, proclaimed of another woman, that uh, of a woman, that uh, through the uh, perfection of the female um, person, we are able to see through that person to uh, the creator of that person. And he did it. I mean, and this is what makes his work different than uh, Petrarch's uh, poetry that followed shortly after. Petrarch, um, Petrarch wrote his first uh, poems in 1327, so within six years of Dante's death. And Petrarch was very humanist in his uh, affection for Laura. And uh, you can see the same thing in Shakespeare, uh, a humanism coming in uh, that glori uh, glorifies in uh, what we came to know as the Renaissance. In the Renaissance, we have this great outpouring of uh, human endeavors uh, for the glorification of man. Certainly, you can see uh, as we began to glorify uh, our own talents during the Renaissance, uh, that the subject was quite often God. Um, you can see this in Michelangelo's works, for instance, and, uh, and so on. But the turn to the, who we were as humans uh, and the turn toward humanism had taken root. When Dante writes uh, the Divine Comedy, he's writing the last great theological or theocentric scholastic work, that our ultimate destiny is heaven. Uh, whereas the Renaissance um, artists really engaged um, in glorifying uh, humanity's um, achievements as man. So what a piece of work is man, so noble. Uh, so that's why he, um, he wrote about uh, purgatory in heaven, because in his desire to write about um, Beatrice, what no man had ever written, he had to demonstrate that Beatrice was the... Um, was the uh, archetype or symbol, uh, allegorically at least, of divine revelation and divine love. And so to end it with human reason uh, would have been outside of his um, scope. Um, that is, he couldn't just have Virgil carry him through hell, uh, like Virgil had earlier gone through at the request or at the command of Erecto in order to descend to the ninth circle of uh, hell and uh, find out uh, the outcome of a war which Lucan talks about in his Corsalia. Human reason had to carry him through virtue and vice, as articulated by uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa, also as articulated by Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics. And then human reason had to deposit Dante at a place where Dante could then provide great, uh, great glorification to God through Beatrice. And uh, so he fulfills in his writing of the Purgatorio and the Paradiso, he fulfills that promise he made in La Vita Nuova. And he did it all in the vernacular Italian because it's a love poem and he wanted women to read it. And women, as smart as they were back then, were usually not schooled in Latin. And uh, so they couldn't read the Latin, um, didactic Latin uh, works, but they could read poetry. And love poetry then was always... Um, was always written in a language that uh, uh, that the educated woman could read. So that that may answer why Dante chooses to write about hell, purgatory, and heaven, and not just hell. But if you look at the source materials that I sent uh, to Shane to distribute to the class, uh, Dante had a great um, review of all the classical literature uh, prior to his even starting on the uh, Divine Comedy. It's almost an encyclopedia. If you look at from the uh, from the dark wood to the um, 
to the mind of God, uh, you pretty much have a, a clear encyclopedic in, uh, entry into all moral, dogmatic um, philo- uh, theology, into uh, um, pastoral theology even, which you can see going up Mount Purgatory, into uh, philosophical anthropology, metaphysics, you know, pretty much anything that was important to know back then finds its way into Dante's um, comedy. So there's two works, if you really want to understand the comedy, that you want to read. One of them is the Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. The other is uh, the La Vita Nuova. Uh, it's, it's a good one because not only does it provide Dante's poetry uh, to Beatrice, but it's, it's the kind of work where Dante explains what he's thinking as he's writing these poems, his process or his philosophy of composition. We don't see another good philosophy of composition until Edgar Allan Poe writes about it uh, in his talking about how he composed The Raven and what his thought was in terms of um, writing for, uh, you know, a a short story in one sitting uh, so that you can preserve unity of effect, ensure that you meet the purpose uh, for the story, you know, the person's purpose that you've written the story for. And maybe there are, I don't know of any between... uh, between Dante's La Vita Nuova and uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven in terms of a, uh, a philosophy of composition that uses the poem itself as the tool for uh, advancing the philosophy. We still have a few minutes of class. Um, I can tell you what we're gonna do next time. Um, if you will, the uh, thing that you wanna focus on is um, The Mystical Rose. So it's the last few cantos of uh, the Paradiso. And in those cantos, Dante's going to pass through a river of light. And he's going to drink that river with his eyes. And his eyes are going to be open, and he's going to realize that he's been there all along in this great mystical rose. And imagine a rose that just unfolds. And in the rose, all the petals are seats like in an amphitheater. And half of those seats are already taken up. The, those are all the Jews. The other half of the seats are mostly taken up. Those are the Christians. So the Jews and the Christians are in heaven. And he says there's not that many seats left, uh, which is a consonant with the idea that the end of the world is nigh. The second coming is going to happen any day now. And uh, we are going to, um, we are going to uh, enter into the fullness of who we are as persons in heaven and in hell when the general resurrection occurs and all those who are dead get to go back and get their bodies. If you uh, uh, know anything about the human person, you know we are composite beings. That is, we are spiritual and material. So to be an incorporeal soul, even in heaven, is not to be the fullness of who you are. In order to be the completeness of who you are, you need your body back, your material body. And uh, that's the promise of the general resurrection that we would be, once again, fully human, which is uh, spiritual and material, a composite being, living in the fullness of God. Um, uh, remember, Arrhenius's uh, point was, um, the glory of God is living man, and living man is man when he sees God. So there you have it. So um, that is uh, how divine revelation, or our theological anthropology, explains the resurrection. 
uh, in the need for the resurrection. But even philosophy could have gotten there had it understood the mystery of the Trinity and of um, our creation and of uh, Christ incarnate and um, how Christ was resurrected into the fullness of who he was because he was both body and soul. He was um, uh, material and spiritual. In the philosophical anthropologists will say, like Statius did, that a God creates a human soul that forms a human body that grows until the human body dies and the soul continues. So it's like... Um, if you were a uh, caterpillar, you would probably look up and see a butterfly and say, ooh, there ain't no way you're ever gonna get me in one of those things. Because you don't understand who you are as a flying being. But we were made to fly. And that's the topic of next week, is how do we fly by realizing what we were, that we were made to fly? Which is pretty neat, but uh, be careful if you're doing it indoors because you'll hit the ceiling. Like uh, Saint Catherine of Siena hit the top of the cave with her head before she realized she was floating. So, uh, and then Saint Teresa of Avila used to have to have people hold her down while she was praying in the church. Can I say one last thing? I don't know if it's the last thing, but just um, the reason I wanted to take this course is because I'm a big fan of the uh, musician uh, Bob Dylan, and okay. he he has a lyric from his song, Tangled Up in Blue. It says, um, she handed me a book of poems. Um, she handed it to me, written by an Italian poet from the, from the 13th century. And every one of those words rang true and glowed like burning coal, pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul for me to you. And Bishop Barron talks about that line, that Bob Dylan's actually talking about the divine comedy, which I never knew. Um, and that was kind of like the start of his, Bob Dylan's conversion um, when he read that. This is really, this is really great stuff. So, and yeah, it, it's, I, I like how it's um, poetry and it's truth at its deepest level. So thanks for doing this. That's, a, that's really exciting, Lucas. Um, it, it's an exciting story because of that, that, uh, that something that somebody else wrote could lift us up into being better versions of ourselves and help mm. us better understand why we're here. And uh, that's what Statius says about Virgil's poetry that uh, after reading it, he suddenly realized he could be better than what he was. It didn't help Virgil, but uh, it helped Statius. Dante's poetry helped him uh, help us. And that's the purpose of that Dante project is to help Dante help Italy. Uh, we've already raised mm -hmm. over $2,000 for the hospitals there. I'm hoping we'll raise 700,000, but I'm not banking on it. Uh, over the next year, we'll probably raise 10 or 15,000. Uh, Timothy uh, Smalls tells me that um, the last put together like that, he was able to raise over 400000 And I got to thinking, huh, uh, well, uh, we should do what you did on your last project to be able to bring in and um, uh, have a greater impact on helping Italy. But very cool. Um, so you know what you're going to do next week? We're going to focus on the Empyrean. Amanda, would you like to pray for us? Sure. Um, okay. Heavenly Father, uh, please be with us all. Help us to grow in understanding of your love for us and help us to begin to grow spiritually um, and begin that journey here on earth um, and through the rest of our lives. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. Okay, stay safe out there. Looking forward to our last time together next week. And um, I've had a really good time these first five weeks. And uh, your enthusiasm uh, increases 
my own enthusiasm. So uh, the love that you have increases the love that I have. And uh, we're back in that wonderful world of the second uh, sphere of heaven where um, Dante's presence increases everybody's love. So um, thank you for being such a wonderful community.